Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nelson Osamu Diamin, a real estate lawyer located here in Calgary, who's also involved in real estate litigations. During the show, we discuss topics including title insurance, RPRs, probate, foreclosures, patent versus latent defects, and how some transactions are ending up in litigation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, Nelson, super excited to have you on the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Just want to start off, can you just maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what's keeping you busy these days? Thank you very much, Corey. Thanks for having me on the show. As you said, my name is Nelson. I'm a lawyer city of Calgary for FP Legal, which is a full service law firm. My area of specialization includes real estate, personal injury, and litigation. Been doing this work now for about 10 years. I'm enjoying it. We're liking the boom that we're seeing in the real estate market. A lot of activities happening in the last few years. So we're just hoping that the trend continues upwards. And yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. So there's a difference, right? So you said there's also a litigation piece. Because you could be a lawyer and you could just maybe do more transactional stuff. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So lawyers are generally stratified into two big boxes. You have the barristers and you have the solicitors. On the barrister side are people that generally go to courts. So people that do litigation. Think about any disputes, whether it's involving property lines or involving a breach of purchase contract or any sort of you know dispute in the business context. All of that would be handled by a barrister. And then on the solicitor side of things, we have more transactional work, which would involve like a typical real estate transaction, whether it's a residential or commercial side of things, or any sort of transaction involving the buying and selling of businesses or assets. Yeah. Interesting. And the litigation side, was that also in real estate that you're involved with? Oh, yes, of course. Of course. We often do litigation in the area of real estate. So you think about a typical issue of somebody enters into a conditional sale agreement for a residential property. And then after doing their home inspection, they discover a significant issue that arises. But for whatever reason, this issue came to the forefront after they had waived their conditions. And, you know, we saw this happening quite often in 2021, where there was a frenzy in the Calgary real estate market, a lot of buying activities. People would just make offers without sight on scene. They wouldn't visit the property before making their offer. And in a lot of cases, they would bid you know, easily $50,000 above list price. So these people would put in unconditional offers. And then after doing home inspection, they would discover an issue that to them was quite significant and they would want to back out of the deal. Or the bank might say, well, this property seems overpriced when the appraiser goes in there and finds out that they, you know, quote unquote, overpaid. So they might want to back out and you have a situation like that. The person puts $50,000 or $100,000 deposit and they want that money back. What do you do? Well, that immediately results in a caveat being attached to the property, and that's the first start of a dispute. Interesting. So you're, you just described someone put in an offer, and they went unconditional on the offer, put a significant... We see that for sure. I see that lots of real estate. But they basically said, if I was buying a house from you, I said, okay, here's $50,000, no conditions. Then is it when I get possession, they're doing a home inspection? Or I guess before possession, they're sneaking a home inspection in, I guess, right? Is that how it's working? Exactly. They might insert a term in there saying they have a right to go in there two or three times prior to possession date. Mm. Entitle them after the waiver of conditions to access the property. And then upon accessing the property, they discover something that they say to them is a significant defect. So it becomes a question of whether this is 
you know, a latent defect or what we might call a patent defect. And I can go into detail as to what those things mean later on in the show, but certainly they discover an issue that to them is quite material. You know, it makes the home distasteful to them. So they no longer want to proceed with the transaction. In those sort of situations, they're left with the question of, are they entitled to their deposit back? And in this case, you know, we're seeing deposit of $25,000 to $100,000, depending on the purchase price. So those issues are often litigated and are taken to court. And obviously, case by case, as to whether they get the deposit back or not. So it's got to be looked at. Could you just describe like a material latent defect versus a latent defect, the differences? Yes. So the distinction there is a latent defect versus a patent defect. A latent defect are things that generally would not discoverable without significant sort of investigation whereas a patent defect would be discovered by reasonable investigation. So think about, for example, a situation where you have a crack on the wall, like a hole in the drywall, and it's behind a curtain, like a curtain covering the hole, right? And the buyer goes in there during inspection, they don't discover that hole. The question arises as to, well, should the seller have disclosed that problem to the buyer? Could the buyer have discovered that hole by reasonable inspection. So that's one situation. And in contrast to another situation where there's a crack in the foundation and there's been flooding over a given period of time, then this person comes and paints over the evidence of water damage so as to conceal that evidence. Then the buyer buys the property. Shortly after buying the property, months later, they discover this problem. So what type of problem is that? Those two scenarios, I think the problems are classified differently. In the first case, it's likely going to be seen as patent defect because it's something that a reasonable buyer could have maybe lifted the curtain. You know, if they didn't discover it themselves, they may have discovered it with reasonable home inspection, right? So those sort of issues would certainly be fall on the buyer and might be under this principle of caveat emptor, buyer beware. But whereas the latter one I described, the crack in the foundation that results in flooding, where the seller paints over it to conceal the evidence of water damage, that there, if the seller refuses to disclose that problem, I believe that buyer discovering it after closing can come after that seller for failure to disclose a latent defect. The contract, the standard real estate contract does provide that protection to the buyer. And obviously, by law, the seller is supposed to disclose these latent defects. Yes, that's correct. Even with an unconditional offer, if there is something significant that may be seasonal, so like you're saying, like a flooding, maybe it only happens during the spring months, the basement gets water. In those scenarios, by law, the seller is supposed to disclose regardless if it's an unconditional offer or not. Precisely. And the reason why the seller has that obligation to disclose is because there's an express term in the contract that stipulates or obliges the seller to provide and convey that information to the buyer. That's where the origin of the obligation. That makes sense. It is quite interesting to hear because we do see, you know, Calgary market's been very hot. And when you go into multiple offers, it seems to be very common that first thing off the table is conditions, right? Which is unfortunate. You know, then the buyer is not protected. They're not being able to do their due diligence, that kind of thing, right? Yes. As a real estate agent here in Calgary, I find it actually fairly frustrating. Like it's awesome when you have a listing, but when you actually have buyers and you're trying to get a deal done, it's actually, you know, very difficult when the market's like this. Exactly. So in a seller's market, buyers have a heightened obligation to be diligent in their buying decision. You know, you often see situations where they're competing offers and you would find sellers selling properties as is. 
you know, if you really want the property and you think it's really desirable, you're forced to enter into that transaction sight unseen. So that's what we're seeing increasingly in this seller's market. So buyers have a heightened obligation to do their due diligence and to do as much inspection as possible before waiving conditions. Yeah. You've probably seen some sewer line type stuff come up to you in litigation where it wasn't disclosed. Maybe the sewer line had issues. So the owner has been getting it cleaned and that kind of thing. So they're aware of those issues. They sell the property. The new owner is unaware and get a sewer backup. Have you seen stuff like that? Those issues are thankfully not very common because think about it this way. Somebody has a sewer backup. I mean, most cases, nine times out of 10, in fact, in 100% of cases, those issues are resolved. There's an insurance claim that's made. The city people come in there and they inspect the line and they do the fix-ups that need to happen. So a reasonable seller is entitled to believe that that problem has been resolved. Um, I, I would argue that that's not a latent defect issue because the issue has been resolved. There are some communities and some areas where these sort of sewer backups are more common. Then if the question does come up and the seller is asked, hey, there been a history of sewer backup in the last, say, two years or three years, and the answer no, then that potentially is a, is a cause for concern. But in most cases, I would think that, you know, if a sore backup does occur and it's fixed, that that's not something that should be disclosed necessarily in the normal course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, as long as it's been fixed and professionally corrected. Yeah, that makes sense. What other type of stuff you see is like maybe a red flag or maybe a common issue that comes up and ends up in litigation? We don't get a lot of issues that come out of uh, these sort of transactions, but the most common one that we saw in our office involved these sort of latent defect issues versus patent defect issues. And they were typically in unconditional offer situations. And it's quite, quite interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you have conditions. You could make a conditional offer so that if you discover any material defect or any issue prior to the condition date, you can pretty much walk away from the deal. But then even after waiving conditions, so if you're on the other side of the fence, you still have the protection afforded in the provision that obliges the seller to disclose latent defects. So that provision is there, whether it's a conditional offer or a conditional offer situation. The only situation where we often do not see that representation being made is in the case of foreclosure, where you're buying a foreclosure property from a bank. In that case, those properties would always be acquired on an as-is, where-is, basis. So the bank is not telling you about any latent defect because quite frankly, it's not within their knowledge. So let's say I'm your realtor, you and I are looking for houses, Calgary's crazy market, and we've got to go unconditional on an offer. You being a lawyer and seeing some of these things come through, is there questions that you would, you know, want asked up front before the unconditional offer went in? Just, you know, disclosures, that kind of thing. Is there any sort of, what would you do to help protect yourself? You know, I think a diligent realtor should obtain a copy of title, start there, and then obtain a copy of the RPR and potentially get disclosure. But sellers might be reluctant to provide that disclosure or to disclose tenancy information, for example, until they have a, an accepted offer. But certainly at a minimum, you can access title and you can obtain a copy of the RPR. The title gives you the opportunity to, you know, at least verify ownership. You know, you might have a situation where the property is in probate and, you know, so then possession would be delayed invariably in those cases. So you want to be aware. And other cases where there are many writs or financial encumbrances registered against the property. So you want to make sure that there's enough money to actually close the deal, because oftentimes sellers are selling against pressure, pressure from the bank. They can't handle the financial burdens of home ownership. So they are forced to sell. 
but you run into delays, a situation where there isn't enough equity or there's just enough equity to cover the transaction where the seller on the eve of closing is negotiating with creditors to see that they can reduce the debt in order to allow the transaction to go through. So the buyers would be faced with delays in that situation. You can imagine a buyer who has a family with young kids and a trailer full of their contents wanting to move into a home on a possession day only to be told, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're not able to actually give possession today. You know, you find yourself on a Friday, for example, what do you do? So these sort of issues easily anticipated if you obtain title early on. Yeah, that makes sense. Title is usually pretty accessible. And actually, some of the stuff you're describing really should be the selling realtor should understand that there's enough equity, you know, for the transaction, that kind of thing that they're not underwater, right? Before it even goes on the market. Yes. But on the buying side, I don't see an updated RPR that common. Like, so if you and I were looking at houses, sometimes it's on order. Occasionally, you'll see a realtor saying in the purchase contract, you need to accept basically an outdated RPR, right? Now, obviously, there can be some risk because you're looking at a property and now all of a sudden there's a detached garage there that was not there before. In those type of scenarios, do you see some stuff like that come up? Well, of course, those issues come up intermittently now and then where the home is under construction. They're still you know, installing the fence lines or they're finishing off the roof or you know, installing a garage. In those sort of situations, the RPR that is available prior to closing may very well be the dated version. So in other words, it may not be the most current version of the fixtures on the land. So in those cases, the lawyers will ensure that there's a holdback plate. So money is held back in order to ensure that a compliance RPR is in fact provided to the buyer post-closing. But inspecting the RPR early on allows you to start considering those questions or those issues in advance, you know? Because obviously there's encroachments, cities require certain setbacks, that kind of thing. And that's the issues that can come up, right? If the RPR isn't updated. So exactly. Sometimes realtors make a mistake of seeing that RPR as interchangeable for title insurance. So it doesn't really work, you know, hand in hand like that, the way some realtors unfortunately think about it, that it does. So we see it as two different things. You know, on the one hand, the RPR is a very important piece of document because it depicts the fixtures on the land and shows you the property lines and where the fence is located, you know, relative to the property line. It tells you where the garage and all the fixtures, all the things that are, you know, fixed to the ground are located. So that document is very important. You absolutely want that document because in every standard real estate transaction, there's an obligation on the seller to provide that. On the other hand, you have title insurance. Title insurance is very much what it sounds like. It's an insurance policy that protects you from certain defined perils that might affect title. So in other words, anything that affects ownership of the property, whether it be like a registration that is put on title, think about a writ that is placed on title that you were not previously aware of, Think about a situation where the seller is actually not the owner of the property, but purports himself to be the owner of the property. So title insurance protects you in those sort of situations. If you had an RPR and you know, were faced with a fraudulent seller, you would not be protected without a title insurance, right? So certainly don't take accepts RP title insurance from the seller in lieu of RPR. Title insurance might cost you, you know, anywhere from $250 to $300. Whereas an RPR to get it updated and reproduced will cost you anywhere from $700 to $1,000. And if you did buy a property and they had built the detached garage and it was encroaching on either the neighbor's property, that kind of thing, if that garage had to be taken down, will title insurance 
protect the buyer in that case? It would protect oh, it does. Okay. if they were not previously aware of the encroachment. It becomes a function of knowledge. So if it's just on the property line, you know, you might not need to because there are ways to sort of deal with those minimal encroachment issues. However, if it's on a utility right of way, like an underground infrastructure, think about a utility line, a sewage line, and the city believes that that is an obstruction. It obstructs their ability to access that sewage line. And as a result, it has to be torn down. Provided that the buyer was not previously aware of that encroachment and they have title insurance, the title insurance company will cover that. It does, hey? Yes. Can you just explain what title insurance does protect you from, like when you're making a purchase? Yeah, you think of situations where, like the one we described, where there's an unknown encroachment issue, or you think about one where there is a basement, an illegal basement, but you were not made to be aware. You were not aware that it was an illegal basement, okay? okay. So the seller presented to you as a legal suite, or... It's a suite, but the electrical work that was done was not done with a permit. It wasn't permitted. And the city discovers this after the fact. So you have a buyer who buys a property. There's a suite that is purportedly legal. They own it. And then the neighbor just complains to the city and the city decides to investigate the basement. They knock on the door and they discover it to be an illegal basement. They go in there. They discover that the electrical work that was done, the panel is not up to code or whatever the case is. And they shut down your basement and say, well, this basement needs to be brought back to code. And, you know, you get a massive bill from the city on that. Those sort of issues. So that goes to permits, something that you were not aware of at the time that you bought the property. Again, issues are not very common because rarely does the city come and start, you know, directing people to convert or reconvert their basement. Although they talked about that a couple of years ago, that they were going to start cracking down on these illegal suites. But situations like that are expected to come up in the future, or you could foresee situations where a neighbor complains and the city comes. Any sort of situation like that where the city is ordering that you corrective measures and you have title insurance to the extent that you were not previously aware and you wouldn't have been aware of that, you could make a claim against your title insurance policy. Interesting. What about if I purchased a house and maybe it wasn't known or disclosed that it was a grow-up, former grow-up? And then I find out, is that going to go into litigation or is that title insurance could help you with that? No, that wouldn't be a title insurance issue. A former grow up, I guess you may have to check to see what the RECA rules are for disclosure of that. But I don't necessarily think that a former grow up is necessarily a bad, like if it's a grow up and it's been remediated and the question comes up, I believe there's a form that sellers can complete, like a grow up disclosure form or something like that. Yep. If that comes up and there's a misrepresentation on it, you know, I don't see that form being completed in every transaction we're involved in. But if it were completed and the seller did not disclose that fact, then it would likely be a misrepresentation. So it's not, you don't necessarily have to go to whether it's a latent defect or a patent defect. That's just misrepresentation. But I don't see home that has had a history of a grow up, which has been remediated to be a latent defect issue that a seller should disclose if the RECA rules do not oblige like realtors to disclose that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Are condo purchases, are they more complex than say a, just a regular detached type property for transactions? The condo transaction process typically involves one extra step, I would say, which is the condominium document review process. The standard real estate condo contract provides an opportunity for the buyer to request the seller to provide condominium documents for the buyer's benefits and review. So the buyer can 
impose that as a condition. And that would typically be to their benefit to do that because the seller pays for obtaining those documents and is obliged to provide those documents within a specific deadline. And then what the buyer does with those documents is they typically send them to a condo specialist or send them to a law firm like ours to assist them with a condominium document review. So that process entails a condo specialist or a lawyer, in our case, reviewing the condominium document and providing a summary to the buyer so that the buyer can make an informed buying decision. In some cases where in the course of our condominium document review, we do uncover issues from reviewing the board of directors minutes. So in the course of reviewing those minutes, sometimes the board of directors will indicate or telegraph the imposition or future imposition of a special assessment. We might also find that information in the reserve fund study where the engineers go in and indicate that within the next few years, certain expenses or certain expenditures have to be incurred. In those cases, you can generally predict, you know, without rocket science, that there's going to be a special assessment or an increase to the condominium levy. So definitely that additional step in a condominium transaction of condominium document review is quite beneficial to a buyer. Yeah, totally agree. Can you just define probate and then how that can affect a real estate transaction? Yes. Yeah, so probate is the process whereby somebody that owns a property passes away. You know, you're left with the question of whether they have the person has a will. A will is a document that, you know, allows for the distribution of a person's assets upon the person's demise. So when the person is passes. So in the cases where that document exists, then it's fairly straightforward to determine how assets are dealt with because there's an administrator that comes in and you know administers the property for the benefit of the beneficiaries as dictated by the will. But things get interesting where there is no will, then this goes through a different process, which is quite lengthy. But the process is just to have the court confirm the death of the person and confirm who the survivors are to ensure that that person's assets or estate are distributed in accordance with the legislation that governs cases where there is no will. So this legislation is called the Wills and the Succession Act. So that process of waiting and going through probate, going through the court's process does take time. If it's not disclosed, and selling realtors would be wise to disclose those facts in the MLS listing, but in cases where properties have to go through probate, that invariably adds you know, a layer of delay depending on where probate is at at the point of listing. What kind of timeline? So like, let's say that is a transaction that's happened, there is no will, and how long can that delay the process? Well, it could take upward of three months, sometimes six months. I mean, think about cases where there are minors. You see somebody passes on and has minor children. In that case, then the office of the public trustee is involved, which imposes an extra layer of complication until the public trustee signs off on the order uh, that distributes the assets to that minor beneficiary. You know, things don't happen. The seller's lawyer will not transact that property. Okay. We've been in situations where it took an extra 45 days because that fact came up late in the process that the beneficiary or one of the beneficiary was a minor. So they started the application process. So if you're faced with a property where the realtor advises that the property is going through probate, you would be wise to ask what stage are they at in the process. And you might want to also obtain timelines to the extent that those are available. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Came across one client who she owned a property. She had a will, but it was only signed by one witness. And then it kind of turned out that, you know, there was, a lawyer had to be involved. But in Alberta, I believe you have to have two witnesses on a will. Is that right? That is correct. But the will wasn't considered null and void, but it just made things more complex. It wasn't a second witness. But yeah, <laughs> I haven't dealt with that a whole lot. But no, look, I'm not an estate lawyer, but. You know, a will is not a will unless it's signed by two witnesses. So I imagine that there might be a case of process through which a lawyer might go to court to get it rectified. There is a doctrine of rectification that is available in common law. So rectification is where you indicate to the court that this is what they intended, but unfortunately they didn't carry it out that way. You know, they intended to do it like this, but could not, you know, for whatever reason or they believe that they had done it that way, the right way at the time. So it's not clear to me right now, because I'm not an estate lawyer, whether that doctrine would be available. But a will is not a will unless it's signed by two witnesses. So that's the basic proposition. Yeah. That's the problem we were running into with her will. Yeah, the will was, you know, probably 15 years old, right? It was not, you know, not easy to deal with, like the fact that they didn't have the second witness on there. Yeah, I imagine if there's no disputes, no surrounding disputes. So if the immediate family members are served with notice that this process is taking place where a lawyer is trying to get the will validated, where there's a technical error like a missing signature. As long as notice is provided to all of the surviving family members that are interested parties, I don't see that being an issue. But again, it will extra layer of delays, which will be a significant inconvenience to a buyer who's not aware of those issues. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a two types of sales, right? There's a court order sale and a judiciary sale. And can you maybe just define those and explain how they're different? Right. So in the foreclosure process, so when we talk about court-ordered sale or judicial listings, we're typically talking about a process where there's been a default under the mortgage. So where a typical mortgagor, a borrower, you know, misses their mortgage payments, you know, and the bank initiates foreclosure proceedings. Essentially, the bank initiates a lawsuit in court against that borrower. The bank is effectively seeking one of two things to get its more its all the money's owing to it paid, or it's seeking to take ownership of the property, take possession of the property under a judicial listing arrangement and have it sold. Cases where the property is worth less than what is owing under the mortgage, the bank would be seeking to take ownership of the property. So when we talk about court-ordered sale, we're talking about a sale that is done typically in the context of foreclosure. And in those cases, depending on where it's at, but in the initial stages, the property remains in the possession of the borrower. So there is a period called a redemption period where you know the bank has initiated foreclosure proceedings against the borrower. And then you know in cases where the borrower is actually occupying that property, there's usually going to be anywhere for a three to six month redemption period. The court is typically in favor of granting a six month redemption period, which effectively says to the borrower, you have six months to either get this property sold so that you pay the bank or refinance it one way or another to pay the bank to get out of this default position that you are in. A wise borrower would be looking to sell the property quickly if they can no longer afford making mortgage payments and if they don't qualify for refinancing elsewhere. So in that case, the property is in you know the foreclosure process, but it remains in control of the borrower. However, after the redemption period expires, 
Then there's a judicial listing. So a judicial listing is effectively a process where typically the bank selects the realtor and this realtor will be appointed under a judicial listing agreement by the courts. So the judicial listing agreement would also stipulate the commission that a realtor will get for the work that they're doing, you know, in the context of the transaction. But it stipulates what the property will be listed for, how long it will be listed for, and where it will be listed at. You know, so that's a judicial listing. All the showings will be done through this judicial listing process that is managed by the appointed judicial listing realtor. Perfect explanation. Thank you for that. And now, so let's say this property does get sold and there can be a first place mortgage, a second place mortgage. There can be property taxes owing. There can be all sorts of outstanding debt, right? And there is an order as to who gets paid first, right? Can you explain that part of it? Yeah, that's a very, very good question because there is a priority system to how creditors are paid their debt, especially in a foreclosure context or in a default context where the borrower is defaulted on the loan. So priority goes based on the level of security that creditor takes at the time that the loan or borrowing transaction was formed. You think about a typical bank, a typical mortgagee, they typically refer to as secured creditors. And what that means is that loan is secured against the home. The home is effectively mortgaged as security you know, in order to secure the obligation of repaying the bank that loan. So yes, the borrower technically owns the property to the extent that their name is on title as registered owner, but that property is pretty much pledged in favor of the bank. So a person is pretty much saying to the bank, I promise to repay you this loan. And if I don't repay you this loan, you have every right to take this property from me, sell it to recover your losses. That's pretty basic arrangement that the borrower is making, right? So the secured creditor gets paid first. So you think about a situation where, you know, listing agent, you get a listing, a realtor gets a listing and you know, a diligent realtor will immediately obtain a title certificate to see what sort of registrations are on title. And in a high interest rate environment, like we find ourselves in today, it's not uncommon for people to have multiple secured loans against their title. So you might think about a first place mortgage to TD Bank at the time that they purchased the property. Then you might see a second mortgage to a secondary lender like Paradigm Quest, for example, or Computer Share, where they take a line of credit for $50,000 that's registered as a second mortgage. Then you might also see a situation where they fall behind on their property tax payments and the city registers a tax notification on title. And in addition to that, they might have credit card debts, you know, RBC credit card and RBC has gone to court against them and obtained judgment for $25,000. And that's also registered on title. So a diligent realtor who has this complexities on title should start investigating how much is owing on each of these debt products, some of which are registered on title and some of which might not be registered on title. So they might want to start computing that and adding them up to determine whether there's even enough equity from the sale to cover those debts. But in terms of the way the priority will work, the bank gets paid 100%. As long as the bank is in the first place and it's secured under a mortgage that is validly registered, that bank will get paid all of its loans, principal, interest, solicitor, client costs. 100% of that will come out first. And if there's anything left, then the second mortgagee, you know, the computer shares or the secondary lenders who gave a $50,000 loan, they get paid second. The city of Calgary obviously also will get paid. And in fact, the transaction would not proceed if the city is not paid. So the bank, in a lot of cases, would add what's owing to the city to what they're owed so that they can get that paid as well. 
the city in that case enjoys a bit of a priority of payments because it's a government body and banks just know to add that to their debt. So those would be general priorities. Then we talked about RBC maybe obtaining a credit card, a judgment against them and registering a writ. Writs are not considered secured debts. So if anything is left, they get pennies on the dollar for what's left because it's not secured. It's an unsecured debt, but enjoys a form of priority in the sense that notice can be registered on title to tell everybody that is potentially wanting to transact with that property that there's a debt against that property. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's a great explanation. Thank you for that. No problem. So we're getting pretty close to the end here. I just want to maybe hit you with a few more personal questions. Maybe if you could just let our listeners know, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? No, thank you very much. So I, uh, our law firm is FP Legal. So our website, so you can check it out, fplegal.ca. That's F as in Frank, P as in Peter, legal.ca. My email address is nelson at fplegal.ca. So that's the best way to get hold of me. Our phone number, of course, also works, 587-391-2222. So either of those form of mode of contact would work, email, phone call. Yes. That's great. And then what kind of stuff do you like to do with your downtime? Well, lately, because we've been cooked up for so long with COVID, traveling is something that I've been enjoying quite a lot lately. Things have gone up with inflation. Things are way more expensive now, but to the extent you can save and book tickets early, you know, that works. For example, first week of October, we're going to be going to Dubai for a friend's birthday. Amazing. And then for the holidays in December, we're going to Cape Town and Johannesburg. You'll check things out there in South Africa. So oh, that's, that's cool. It's what I enjoy. Yeah. That's awesome. And do you have a movie or a book that you recommend? Oh, a book. I've read this book a few times now. It's called Blue Willow. So Blue Willow is written by an author named Deborah Smith. You know, it's the story of adversity. It's a story of, you know, hard work pays off. It's also a love story. So I encourage everybody to take a read. There's something there for everyone. That's awesome. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for being on the show. You provided lots of value for the listeners. And yeah, you're the first lawyer to be on my show. And I really appreciate it. You know, Corey, thank you so much for having me. It was fun hanging out with you and talking about real estate. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.